If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to the book of Ephesians? And as always, as the sun moves around its course, if you need to get up and move to some shade, that's just fine. You're not bothering us in the least. Kids, I don't know if you remember, you were here last Sunday, uh, I told a little story. Remember that story? It was about a slave that became what? Do you know? He became the son of a king. This one day, this slave was chosen, and uh, he was brought before the king, and the king said, I'm going to make you my son, and all the stuff that needs to happen to make that happen happened, and he became a son of the king. He went from being a slave to being a son. That former slave was made a full son of the great king. The problem was inside, nothing seemed to have changed, or at least it didn't feel so much like the son of a king. Uh, He was prone to wander back to the old ways of living, and so he needed some time in royalty finishing school in order to fully grasp his new identity. You, You need to understand your identity, who you are, in order to live the right way. And last week, we identified this connection between identity, and behavior. Policemen need to act like policemen. Uh, Premiers need to behave like premiers. Christians need to behave like Christians. And that means there are some things Christians should not do, and there are some things Christians should do. And today I want to kind of deep dive into the things we must not do. Those kinds of behaviors that that are out of line with our Christian life, out of line with our Christian identity. So I want to take you back to this letter to the Ephesians and show you what I think is really a remarkable thing. Paul's writing to Christians, and based upon the sins that he's telling them to stop doing, it becomes very evident that real Christians can sin very badly. When Paul moves from chapters 1 to 3 about speaking about their new identity, he he turns now to telling them to stop a bunch of bad behaviors that don't match that identity. And these are not your little old church lady kind of sins. He's telling these Christians, look, you guys need to stop stealing. You need to stop lying. You need to stop using bad words, using your words to harm other people. You need to stop being contentious. You need to stop messing up your family. Those kinds of behaviors, they don't match who a Christian really is. Who's a Christian? I'll take you back to last Sunday. Uh, You're chosen to be holy. You're saved to do good works. You're loved in order to love other people. And now, you're, as a Christian, you're seeking to get your, line, your, your life in line with that new identity. You're trying to live with some identity integrity. And getting your practice parallel to your position. Getting your activity to match your identity. And we can summarize that process with this little mantra. Become what you are. Become what you are. Now you need to think about that for a minute. Become what you are. 
Paul explains this. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And notice what he says here. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, writing to Christians, you Christians must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now walk here is a metaphor for your habit of life, your behavior. It's crucial you see this. Paul is saying Christians can live, they can act, they can behave like people who are not Christians. They can live oppositely to who they really are. And he's telling them to stop. No longer walk this way, he says. No longer behave this way. Stop behaving like the world and become, in your actions, what you really do with your life, become who you really are. And I don't know about you, but when I see those kinds of things, I'm like, well, how do you do that? Well, you start, if you follow the logic of Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus, you, you start by pondering your new identity. You, you work at understanding who you are in Christ because this changes the way that you think about everything. And that mind renewal generates new behaviors. As the mind is renewed, you begin to pull your actions into line with your position, your new identity. And this new way of thinking leads to putting off some things and putting on other things. There's a, there's a wardrobe change that takes place in the Christian's life where the clothes are a metaphor for your behavior, your actions. So drop down to verse 20 of chapter 4. That's not the way you learned Christ. You didn't, you didn't learn Christ. And he's saying here um, in the context, acting like Gentiles is not what you learned. That's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. So there's an old you that belongs to the old way that you were living, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 23, and to be, here it is, renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness here are behavior words. They're, they're words about how you live and act in the world. You do what is right. You live a holy life. So look at that again. The end of verse 22 there, or, or sorry, verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Paul's calling for this mind renewal, this pondering of your new identity and this pondering of your new identity kills corrupt desires and it opens the door to, to acting in ways that mimic God. You're acting like God in his character. What Paul's saying here is that conversion is a little bit like the light switch in your kitchen. When the light stays on, the cockroaches stay away. When the light of God's word is framing your thinking, you begin to discern. That means you begin to figure out what pleases God, what behaviors match your identity. And the infestation of sin in your thinking is exterminated by the insecticide of truth. So in a real, very real sense, you are what you think. You are what you think. No wonder, then, that Satan works extremely hard to distract you, deprogram you, and indoctrinate your mind in the ways of the world. 
In fact, if we are not diligent to light our path with God's word, we will easily begin to excuse sins and get offended by preferences, politics, or personality quirks. Or we'll be so enamored with the opinions of a certain person that we'll give a pass to the sins they commit as they promote their opinions. If we are not wise, all right, if you and I are not wise as Christians, we will allow sinful behaviors to become normative and acceptable in the way we deal with one another and speak to one another. We will grow comfortable with sins and we'll, we will become callous to righteousness. That is why we should be so grateful that God has given us a vocabulary of sin. You would be wise to learn it and wise to use it. There's a sin encyclopedia in your Bible if you've got the eyes to see it. God tells us, this thing right here, that's a sin. And he expects that we would call it a sin too. And that we would treat it like a sin. Something to put to death. A horrible offense against God for which Jesus had to die. And all I want to do today is look at five sins that Christians commit. And rather than letting us just kind of drift into accepting those sins as kind of normal behavior, I'm calling on you and I'm calling on me to do everything we can to get those sins out of our own lives and to be willing to address them in the lives of our brothers and sisters in our church. What are those sins? The first one is this, the sin of of falsehood. Ephesians 4 verse 25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we're members one of another. So your wardrobe change begins here. Falsehood is saying or promoting anything untrue or unreal. God is true. He is the definition of truth, all truth begins and ends in him. Everything that veers away from God himself and what he has revealed is a falsehood. Now, there are many ways to be false. As humans, we've kind of perfected the art. There's open deception, just lying to somebody. Satan lied to Eve. Surely you will not die when you eat it. That was a lie. There's open deception. There's secret deception. Uh, Jacob uh, to Isaac, he put on his brother's cologne, right? It's like, I'm my brother. Uh, there's flattery. Servants going up to their masters and saying, oh, king, live forever. Like, nobody believes the king's going to live forever. It's flattery. It's a form of deception. There's silence. You can deceive with silence, not giving useful information or leaving out some information that would provide a true picture to reality. We're all familiar with spin, Presenting information in a way that misdirects to a false conclusion. We're also familiar with exaggeration. Exaggeration is a form of falsehood. Adding information or adding emphasis in order to manipulate the truth. Not long ago, I listened to one Christian describing the plight of another Christian in this way. He said he was led away in chains to a maximum security prison. 
The thing was, that wasn't true. That was exaggeration. It was the falsehood of exaggeration. Now, I can, if he, that person meant by chains, handcuffs, okay, but when I hear chains, I'm thinking, you know, shackles and chains, but all, all right. But it was no maximum security prison. It was a remand center. If you've done any prison ministry, you know there's a big difference between a maximum security prison and a remand center. So, by my observation, this Christian was guilty of exaggeration, which is a form of falsehood. Now, why did he stretch the facts in that way? I don't know, because I don't know his heart. Why would he exaggerate? Don't know. I am very sure that he had good reason to objecting to the imprisonment of that other person. But those objections, good and right as they might have been, are never a reason to tell falsehoods, to exaggerate. And it's right here where I think you and I need to start paying attention. It is very easy, all right? It is very easy to excuse the sin of falsehood if you agree with the objections. And in a season of heated opinions, we are all tempted to exaggerate to make our case. We're all tempted to be false. Regardless of what side you are on any particular issue, and no matter when you live, friend, there's always issues, and there's always sides. But we, as Christians, should be terrified of falsehood. Why? God, who cannot lie, Titus 1-2, hates all falsehood, Proverbs 12-22, will send all unrepentant liars to hell, Revelation 21-8, where they will spend eternity with their true father, Satan, the father of lies, John 8-42. Sons and daughters of the king have to learn to fight for the truth, fight to only speak what is true, to, to catch themselves before they begin to make the story a little bit better by adding in a few facts, which are not facts. We, ha we have to fight to believe what the person is telling us is true and not to be suspicious that it's all full of nonsense. In other words, brothers and sisters, we have got to learn to kill exaggeration, to kill spin, to kill deception, to kill falsehood of every kind. Which means the next time you exaggerate, you should confess it as a sin. Ask forgiveness from the people that you deceived. You know what? I added a little bit there. I was telling you about this and this, but these things I put in the story didn't actually happen. That I just, I just said those things. They're not true. It's a lie. That's what you do with sins, right? Our God is a God of truth. We're to be the people of truth. Look, it is better to be honest and less in the eyes of men than to deceive and be nothing in the eyes of God. It is better to lose the argument speaking only the truth than win it having lied. Let us be done with falsehood, all of it. The sin of falsehood. Number two, the sin of sinful anger. Sounds a little redundant, but let me explain myself. The sin of sinful anger. Ephesians 4.26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. There are two forms of anger, if you see it in this verse. Be angry and do not sin. So we'll come back to the 
sinless anger in a moment, but first let's look at sinful angry. Be angry and do not sin. How can you tell what sinful anger is? Let me give you just a few ways to tell. Number one, it's easily set off. Proverbs 14, 17. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. That's Proverbs 14, 17 if you need to memorize it. Uh, sinful anger stirs up more sins. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Sinful anger stirs up more sins. Sinful anger lasts too long. Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. If the sun goes down and you're still angry, you got sinful anger. Sinful anger invites Satan into your relationships. Verse 27, give no opportunity. That word can be translated foothold. Give no opportunity to the devil. You get sinfully angry, Satan sticks his foot and ha, here I am. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, said James, chapter 1, verse 20. But the fact that Paul says, in your anger, do not sin, indicates that you can be in your anger and not sin. So there appears to be something called, not righteous anger, sinless anger. Sinless anger. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, demonstrated this on at least one occasion. There might be more, although none is more explicit than the one in Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, there's a man with a withered hand, and they're getting angry that he's going to heal this man on a Sabbath day. Mark 3, 5 says, he looked around at them with anger, or gaze, wrath. He, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And his hand was restored. But if you go to Mark chapter 3 and you read this account, you see here that Jesus' anger was connected to his grief, his grief at their hardness of heart. And look at what he did in his anger. He healed and he taught. He did not explode in wrath. He did not, he did not start hitting people. He wasn't screaming. You might be thinking, well, yeah, okay, there's one example, but he cleansed the temple. Wasn't that anger? I'm not so sure it was. I challenge you to go back and read those accounts again. Perhaps we have imported anger into the word zeal. Zeal for your house has consumed me. You won't find the word anger there. My point in this is that in three and a half years of public ministry, Jesus was hardly ever angry. And when he was, his anger, because he's the son of God, his anger was sinless. It was without sin. Which makes me think, if in three and a half years we got one sure account of Jesus being angry, and there doesn't seem to be many more, uh, in your lifetime, sinner, I don't think you will be sinlessly angry very often. That's why the great majority of Bible verses warn against anger. Which means if you're an angry person, if you got angry this week, it probably was not sinless anger. If you got angry five times in the last month, it was probably not sinless anger. In three and a half years, we can spot one place where Jesus is angry with sinless anger, and that's about it. 
no matter how righteous you considered your cause to be, even when your cause was the noble commute. Yeah, and you're driving to work this week. I don't know if you found this. There's a lot more cars on the road lately. Everything is getting a little slower. People haven't been driving for two years. They don't know what they're doing out there. Like, just ease back, stay away, don't hit my car. Easy to get angry. When you're driving this week, you remember sinless anger, sinful anger. Brothers and sisters, like it's the Bible. We're either going to be honest and try to kill sinful anger in our lives, or we're going to give it a pass. What are you going to do in your home this week? What are you going to do when the little kids start to bug you? What are you going to do when your wife bothers you? Let's rid ourselves of sinful anger. Thirdly, the sin of stealing. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal. To steal means to take possession of something that does not belong to you. Stop doing that, says Paul. Never do that. Now, you can steal things by robbing a bank, or you can steal things by taking some stuff from work that doesn't belong to you. That's called pilfering. Paul talks about it in Titus chapter 2 when he's addressing slaves. He says, don't be pilfering, but show all good faith so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Pilfering is taking things that are not yours, pens, paper, supplies, maybe electronic devices supplied for your working at home that belong to your employer. Paul says Christians can steal. So can fake Christians, by the way. Think of Judas. Judas was a thief long before he was a betrayer. John chapter 12, verse 6, having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put in there. He did that for years. One of the disciples, he listened to Jesus, he served Jesus, he worked with Jesus, he smiled at Jesus, he's like, you're right on Jesus, and he was a thief the whole time. Are you a thief? Then you might be a Judas. Because real Christians don't keep on stealing. You can steal time. Paul talks to slaves again, and he says to them, uh, don't do your work by eye service. That means uh, only work when the boss is watching and sit around and do nothing when he's not. That's eye service. You're, you're a time thief. You can steal other people's thoughts or ideas. There's been a lot going on lately about plagiarism, taking other people's ideas and presenting them as your own. You can steal a person's reputation. You make false accusations, and now that person's character has been damaged. You rob them of opportunity. You rob them of perhaps promotion. You can steal things by borrowing them, which, by the way, if you have my book, would you please give it back? You can steal by finding things that are not yours. When I was a kid, we would say, finders keepers. Anybody say that anymore? I don't know. The Bible actually says, finders stewards. You read Deuteronomy chapter 22, and you see your neighbor's ox, and uh, the neighbor's not around. You've got to take him. You've got to put him in your barn. You've got to feed him. You've got to take care of him. It might be maybe weeks and weeks and weeks till the neighbor finally comes over, and he's like, have you seen my ox? It's like, he's in my barn. And then you're, you just take him back. You are your duty bound to return it. Well, you steal by finding things that are not yours and keeping them for yourself. You can steal by remaining silent when the clerk gives you too much change. When the gate agent counts wrong and you get a couple kids in for free. 
Paul says, no, be the new you. Refrain from ever stealing again. And as you become what you are, be done with stealing. And be done with speaking the wrong way too. That's the fourth sin, the sin of bad words. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Corrupt, corrupt is bad, uh, rotten, unwholesome. Spoiled milk goes down the drain. Rotten apples go into the compost. Garbage words belong in the landfill. Don't let these kinds of words come out of your mouth. They might pop into your head, but don't let them pop out of your mouth. It's interesting what he says there, right? Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Like as if he knows. It's like sometimes you're like, mm, you just, mm. you're like mm, zip it, lock it, stick it in your pocket. Don't say it. Any word, think about this, any word that's not motivated out of love so that it gives grace to the listener, there's a garbage word. And we spew out a lot of them. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, listen to this. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. There's an equation. More words, the more transgression. When words are many, transgression's not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. I would translate this verse this way. The more you talk, the more you sin, which is why, and I mean this, you should pray for the teachers of your church. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, because you will incur a stricter judgment. You might be nervous about going on a first date. You might be nervous about a big presentation you've got to make at work. But what you should really, really be nervous about is opening your mouth. Every word we speak as Christians is to be seasoned with grace. That means it's to be wholesome. It is to be helpful. Every word we speak will be accounted for in the judgment. Now just take a moment. Consider all the words you spoke last week. That should make you nervous. Another thing that would make you nervous is when your iPad overheats and shuts down. So, you got a bulletin? I just need a little help. Thanks. Where were we? Oh, yeah. Sin of bad words, right. I had other things I was going to say about that, but frankly, this one caught me off guard, and I don't remember what they are. So let's, uh, if somebody has a Bible too, could I have a Bible? Thanks, Will. Thanks. There are lots of ways to sin, lots of ways to sin with your words. I think I was telling you about too many words. But there are other things here in this particular text that you should pay attention to. Let me start in verse 25 to help gather my own thoughts. 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So the standard by which we evaluate our words is this. Do my words give grace to those who hear? Do my words encourage? Do my words build up? Do my words give all that is necessary in order for me to function in such a way? Look at that. Amazing. You guys are incredible. Thanks, Rafi. Well, I had a whole other sermon cooking in my head. Now I've got to go back to my old sermon. That's fine. One thing I did want to point out, which I'm glad I have notes for, is uh, I don't think we think about this often. You can go to hell, all right? I, I'm not saying this lightly. You can go to hell for something you said. This is Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's a terrifying verse. In the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. You got a plan in place to get excused from the guilt of all your bad words? Let me tell you what will never work. Bringing to God all your good words as a way to earn his favor. That doesn't deal with all the bad words you already spoke. Positive words don't take care of the good words. By your words, you will be condemned forever. Unless, of course, you find a way to erase your guilt. You got a way to do that? There's only one way that works. Let's go to the fifth thing, the sin of being contentious. To be contentious is to be characterized as quarrelsome, hostile, suspicious, always causing strife. A contentious person is hungry for a fight, more committed to winning an argument than winning over an opponent. Verse 30, 31 summarizes this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness, it just means you're a sour, crabby kind of person. It, it's, it, it's this sort of low-grade suspicion against everyone. You think people are against you. You're resentful. You hold grudges. He says, take off all bitterness. Take off all wrath, which are these explosions of anger. Uh, take off all anger. That word for anger is more the sort of settled disposition of always being grumpy, a state of mind where you're just sort of mad about everything all the time. It only takes a little bit to set you off. Take off all clamor. Clamor is, is shouting in anger, that uncontrolled screaming at another person, whether it's in the confines of your own little home or whether it's out on the street corner. Take off all slander. Slander is the word blasphemy. It's, it's using words to, to harm other people, to tear down other people. It's calling names and damaging reputation, speaking lies about others. Take off all malice. Malice is a very interesting word. It's the plotting of evil against other people. 
Ever find yourself doing that? You leave a conversation and your mind's just going, well, you know, next time. That's malice. Somebody, even if that somebody is a Reformed Baptist pastor, somebody that is bitter and angry and, and plotting the takedown of other Christians and shouting, whether that's in person or through his keyboard, that person is a contentious man, even if the content of what he says is correct. Malice, slander, clamor, anger, wrath, bitterness, they are sins. It doesn't matter who you are, what cause you're fighting for, they have zero place in the Christian life. Remove these behaviors entirely. You might be sitting there going, well, it's just kind of in my nature to be sort of crabby. It ain't in your new nature. Become what you are. Become what you are. Stop hiding your slander behind sarcasm. Stop defending your malice toward other people by saying, I'm zealous for God. Stop excusing your bitter words and, yes, even your bitter tone with an appeal to all the sacrifices you've made for the king. Look at the word. Did you notice the word all in verse 31? Let all bitterness, and that applies to everything that follows, let all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all clamor, all slander be put away from you along with all malice. There is no room for these things. Not in our church, not in our province, not in the world. These things are a sin. The fruit of the Spirit is snark, suspicion, and slander. Said nobody ever. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. In fact, it is these kinds of sins of the contentious man that grieve God. Look at verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is not complicated. No mom or dad sits on their sofa watching their, their little son and their little daughter just pulling each other's hair out and going, oh, isn't that sweet? It grieves them. I love you and I love you and I want you and you to love each other. When Christians treat other Christians with clamor and slander and anger and wrath, whether that's the Christians in one home or the Christians in one church or the Christians speaking to other Christians from other churches, when that happens, God, the Holy Spirit himself, is grieved. You break his heart. He loves those ones, even if they differ substantially with you on other issues. And he loves you. And he would have us love one another. There's a way to say the right thing in the wrong way. And there's a way to say the wrong thing in the right way. God says, my children, say the right thing in the right way. Peter wrote something similar, 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I love one of the old Dutch translations translates this verse. When you go from Dutch to English, it's translated, brothers, be friendly to one another. <laughs> and I think they were on to something. 
Good on the Dutchies, all you Dutchies out there. Okay, so here's your Sin Encyclopedia, Volume 1. Behaviors that do not match the new you. The sin of falsehood, the sin of stealing, the sin of, the sin of sinful anger, the sin of bad words, the sin of being contentious. What do we do now? Here's what you do. If you're listening to your friend ranting about his political views or her doctrinal views, and you find that that rant is full of exaggeration, false accusations, burning anger, words without grace, even if you totally agree with their opinion, you are now duty-bound to stop them and say, my brother, my sister, could be wrong. Sounds like that's exaggerating a little bit. Yeah? Okay, yeah. My brother, my sister, that's falsehood. It's a sin. You need to confess that to the Lord. Let's pray together. When I give these illustrations, I'm not making stuff up. Like, I expect that's what Christians will do. I think it was this week, I was saying something to Pastor Steve, and I realized afterwards I just I had spun it a little bit in my favor. And I, just, I said, I'm sorry, brother. I, I, I just kind of made that worse than it was. I just expect that's what we do as Christians. We are just aiming our lives to truth, to reality, to be like God. Are you willing to, to look another member of our church in the eye and just say, hey, that doesn't look like sinless anger. This is how we help each other. I told you that um, we all need some way to erase our guilt before God. And that there was only one way to do that. And of course that way is Jesus. When Jesus suffered on the cross, what was he doing? He was paying the price, all right? There's a man hanging on a cross, being crucified. What is he doing? He's paying the price for all your horrible words. He's paying the price for your selfish words. He's paying the price for your perverse words. He's paying the price for our evil words. Even our silence when we should have been using words. And you've got to look at Jesus in his agony on that cross and admit, that's what I deserve. And we're just talking about words, not actions. That's what I deserve. I deserve to die for my sins. If you can't say that, you've not understood the gospel. I deserve hell. Me, Paul Martin, I deserve hell because of what I have done, because of what I have said, because of what I have not done. I deserve hell. But I look in that cross and I don't only see the punishment for sin. I see the solution to sin because he died in my place. And he walked out of that grave and he ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of his father and God himself approved of his work so that all who turn to him, all who come to him and admit, I'm the problem, I'm the sinner, I've broken the law, I, have, I am the sinner here. All who look to Jesus and say, would you make a trade? Your life? for my lousy life and then see the smile of your king who says I so gladly give my life for you 
This is what it means to be a Christian. When you know you've been chosen by God and loved by God and saved by God, you are now empowered to live like a different person. I don't know about you. I don't want to be like the world. Not in my best moments, at least. I don't want to be like the world. I want to be like Jesus. May God make it so. Friends, there's a prayer that comes next in your song sheet there that you were given on your way in. I'm going to pray it for us. I'm just going to read this prayer because it comes right from the Bible. You don't have to read along. If you want to close your eyes and just listen as I pray, that's fine. If it would help you to read it, then feel free to. But aware of our sins, let's make our confession together to the Lord. You follow as I pray. Oh God, you are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are Yahweh, the God who chose Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to bless all of his descendants. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You redeemed Israel out of Egypt. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. However, like them, we have acted presumptuously, stiffened our necks, not obeyed your commandments. We praise you that you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We praise you for not forsaking us. For you gave us your good spirit to instruct us and lead us and you have not withheld your word from us. You have sustained us in our wildernesses and we have lacked nothing. Yet in our spiritual prosperity, we were filled and became fat and delighted ourselves in all our blessings and we quickly turned and became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind our backs. Our sins increased our sorrows. So in the time of our suffering, we cried out to you and you heard us from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave us a way out. But after this, we only turned to do evil again before you. Yet every time we turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times delivered us according to your mercies. Plus you warned us from your word in order to turn us back to your law. Yet here we are again. We've acted presumptuously again and not obeyed your commandments nor your rules. You have borne with some of us for many years and warned us by your spirit through your word. Yet so often we have not listened. Nevertheless, because of your great mercies in Jesus Christ our Lord, you do not make an end of us nor forsake us, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, please forgive us all our sins. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. We have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave us. Even with all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, we have not served you with our whole heart nor turned fully from our wicked ways. So we plead again for your forgiveness. Amen. And may it be so.